Geico presents, oh, uh, not again, another voicemail from your roommate. Hey, man, so I was in a rush to get to work and I left the back door open. Could you shut it? I left it wide open. Uh, while you're there, could you also turn off the oven and all of the burners? <laughs> My mom never let me use the oven. I wonder why. <laughs> The GEICO Insurance Agency could help keep your personal property protected, like if it's your roommate's first time operating an oven. Visit GEICO.com to see how easy it is to switch and save on renter's insurance. Contour from Cox has all your favorites, all in one place. And with the Contour Remote, you can use your voice to find them on live TV, on demand, and streaming apps like Netflix, Prime Video, and more. See Cox.com for details. Today's show is brought to you by BarkBox.com. For humans, BarkBox is a delivery of four to six natural treats and super fun toys curated around a surprise theme each month. For dogs, BarkBox is like the joy of a million belly scratches. Get one free extra month of BarkBox at www.getbarkbox.com babes. That's G-E-T-B-A-R-K-B-O-X dot com slash B-A-B-E-S. From Cabernet to Montmartre, they're here to slay the art history babes. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Corey. And I'm Nat. And we are the art history babes. Yeah, we're still rocking it with two of us, two babes today. Mm-hmm. We were just talking about some feminism in contemporary television. Yes, which I've been very, like, hyper-aware of lately. I'm a, I'm a, a Game of Thrones watcher, so we are talking about, and I won't give too much away, but a recent, last week's episode, actually, well, as we're recording this, so it'll be a ways back by the time <laughs> you guys hear it. But it's a recent episode, what, late episode July episode? Yeah. Where um, there's a scene of Khaleesi in a room with all these leaders of different countries and regions, and she's trying to kind of convince them to join forces with her and try and take down King's Landing, a.k.a. Cersei, who is another female in charge of a huge region of land in the world, the Seven Kingdoms, essentially, which, whatever. If you're a fan, you know that that's not exactly how it's going down right now, but it's a huge role And it's only been controlled by male characters until this point, so kind of a big deal. She's in charge of it now. Nice twist. Yes, and the person who she's most worried about is another female who is in charge of lots of countries and is trying to coax these other people into joining her who are also women. Like, it's a table, it's this round table of women talking about if they're going to you know, join and fight against this huge kind of superpower, essentially. And there's this great, you know, after the episode scene where one of the producers talks about how the scene would not be the same with men, that it would be pretty boring (laughs) because you've seen it so many times and time again. It's people just talking about whether or not they should go to war and how they should do it if they do. And that's not interesting inherently. It's not something that's, you know, it happens. It's a scene you kind of glaze over and you pay attention again when the battle starts but the fact that it's these really powerful um opinionated intelligent women it really makes the scene dynamic and like you really focus in on it and it's unbelievable i've actually and it's not unbelievable it's it should be more (laughs) should be believable yeah exactly it's believable so it should be more common so I like recently, I don't watch Game of Thrones, and to be completely honest, I have zero intention of watching Game of Thrones. It's just not my bag. Like, it's just not my thing. I watched one episode once, and I was like, nah, this just isn't for me. Um, no hate on anyone who is into it. But I did somehow end up in a conversation about feminism in Game of Thrones recently with, like, really close friends of mine. And I was, like, doing my best to try and, like, understand and follow the argument, not being someone who watches it. And a really good friend of mine got into this argument with someone else who I didn't really know him very well about Cersei. And like, oh yeah. And the the other dude was, he just was like hating on her like crazy, which I understand she's like an evil character. Yeah, like I exactly. understand yeah. she does a lot of really shitty stuff. Um, So like, like fairly, he was like hating on, on her. And then my friend was like trying to make this argument about how she's actually like, 
a very feminist character, though, because in a lot of ways she's doing the same thing a lot of male characters have been doing for a long time. And I just found as a lover of all things feminism, I was like really entranced by this conversation and this debate that was going on, especially because I didn't like I don't watch the show. And I was just like trying to follow it. And it was really interesting because I actually got another friend involved who is a woman and a feminist. And she was like, like, she's not a fan of Cersei, but she was also trying to see this like feminist angle that my guy friend was making about it. And it turned into this really interesting like mix of different opinions about whether like, Cersei's redeemable or not and like my guy friend who was making the argument for her like Cersei's his favorite character and understandably so she's not necessarily my favorite but I do get that argument and I actually we talked about it on on our uh, Eurobabes episode but I was in Croatia after our uh, art history babes Euro escapades I went off on my own with some other friends and we did a Game of Thrones walking tour in Dubrovnik because if you I bet are you it was a beautiful. huge, oh, it's gorgeous. <laughs> and if you're a big Game of Thrones fan, you know that most of the outdoor scenes in like King's Landing and other locations as well, because you know CGI, they're filmed in Dubrovnik. So we could kind of walk through and see all these places. The uh, tour guide who was just lovely, he um, was an extra, and he had a lot of insider information about the show and whatnot. And he was kind of talking about Cersei and, like, he had been in scenes with her and stuff. And Lena, uh, what's her last name? Lena, shoot, I will look it up. But she's a badass. Just The person who plays her? Is that who it is? Yeah. I'm wanting to say Lena Dunham, knowing that's not right. It's it's (laughs) Lena something. I really like imagining Lena Dunham in (laughs) Game of Thrones. That would be a great (laughs) SNL skit. It really would. Um, (laughs) But she is just super cool, as I've heard. And, um... Yeah, he talks about how she is this character who's so awful and so ruthless, but you do empathize her more than you empathize with any other character who's done equally as horrible things. Mm-hmm. Because the the thing about Cersei is she's a mother, um, and she's a woman. So she kind of touching on what Corey couldn't from watching the sh- from not watching the show. She has this human quality because she cares about her children in such an extreme way. And everything about her is so quote unquote masculine in that she would do anything and hurt anyone to get where she wants to be and to take care of the only thing that she cares about, which is her children. That's like, very Slytherin. Yeah. Very Slytherin of her. <laughs> yeah. And if you're watching the show, you know where that gets her and everything. But um, but it is. It's something that you look at some of the male characters who have done anything and said anything to the point where you truly hate them like you can't watch those actors in any other show without feeling just this immense (laughs) sense of disdain that that is a real thing but that will never happen with Cersei because she does have this human quality of motherhood that none of these male characters can ever that's very interesting yeah it is it's it's I don't know I I love Game of Thrones I gotta (laughs) say I I, it took me a few seasons to get into it but once I was in I was I was all in I I mean I there are things from what I can tell I understand why people are into it I think for me well one I really really struggle with just violence so like oh I do too and I I look away all the time and I cringe all the time so (laughs) so, I get that yeah that's already a problem for me and two like let's be real I watch way too much TV as it is I don't need to get into anything else so it's just a combination of like me just choosing my what media I consume not in any way saying that like I it seems like a really cool world and like a very interesting thing and I like all of at least as a bystander it's almost kind of fun for me to not actually know what's happening in the show but to be a part of like conversations about it sometimes like I could see you reading a book about the show <laughs> yeah. in like 10 years like never watching yeah. it but like then I do that. watching a documentary about it and reading yeah about it. I would read like a social commentary in yeah. Game of Thrones that I sounds see. that's Corey's angle <laughs> and then going back to this idea of the violence I think that's a perfect segue into our episode yeah because I'm with Corey violence makes me super uncomfortable and at, as I'm very aware of watching UFC fights with my boyfriend last night and today that it does make me super uncomfortable (laughs) but I also try and like stay aware of the fact that it's such a real part of human nature and to completely ignore it and shut yourself off from it is not 
it makes the it, correct approach. It makes it worse a lot of the yeah. time. Because, like, to be fair, like, I grew up in a, like, I grew up in a situation where I didn't have, um, like, I could watch anything I wanted, and I watched, like, horror movies from a very young age and stuff, and so, like, I grew up with it, like, around me a lot, and the funny thing is, is, like, as I've gotten older, I've become more sensitive to yeah. it, and it's, like... Because you realize that even the stuff that's quote-unquote fake is so rooted in things that are scarily real. Real, exactly! Um, so, like, I, I've become more sensitive to it, and, like, I'll be completely real, like, the more, like, the more I think about it, the more, like, my sensitivity just gets more and more intense, which is fine, it's just part of who I am, but, like, I also can't live in a utopia where violence doesn't happen, so you have to, like, exactly, you have to, like, you know, try and strike that balance, but also, before we jump in this episode, that is an important point to make, we're going to do... Nat brought up UFC fighting, we're very soon, like probably right after this episode comes out, we're going to drop an episode in anticipation for the big like Mayweather um, McGregor McGregor fight, uh, which has been also a very interesting thing to watch from a distance as someone who's not into boxing or UFC or anything. So like we're going to do an episode kind of about one, the spectacle of violence and also portrayals of boxing in art throughout Mm -hmm. history because there's a lot of really cool ones and the artistry Um, of fighting because you can't deny going back to yeah like the greeks and stuff there is this spectacle but there's also an element of athleticism and kind of beauty and like uh grace in a way yeah Yeah, definitely it's it's complicated so so that's probably going to be like a pretty intense episode but i'm really excited for that one so Mm -hmm. be on the lookout for that that'll come out probably right before the fight so like sometime in august um but yeah so today we're doing the last installment of our thesis series um it's nat's turn she's gonna dive in to some of the main ideas from her thesis and focus on well she was was one of one of us that focused solely on one artist Mm -hmm. so we're gonna be talking a lot about him today and his work which is super intense but also like really cool yeah so nat take it away yes i agree with all of the things said just now (laughs) um so Gottfried Hellnwein is an Austrian-born artist, and the reason that I brought him up in tandem with this idea of violence is that it's definitely a heavy theme in his work. Um, It's something that is really weaved into everything that he does, and not because he (laughs) has some sort of appreciation or draw like weird attractions. Yeah, he's yeah. not trying to fetishize violence, which I think could be a common misconception looking at his art, so I want to say that right off the bat. Like I said, Austrian-born, born in 1948 Vienna, so if you are interested in history or just, you know, a human being that knows what's happened in the last hundred years, <laughs> you know that that's a very, it's a very unique and kind of horrible place to come into. Um, This is post-World War II Austria, and his life is, in his outlook, I should say, not his life, um, his outlook is really shaped by this time and place in history. So the aftermath of World War II comes into his work pretty much in every way from my point of view, or not from my point of view, but as I would say, it's it's in everything that he does, but I'm going to focus in this episode on his work that directly references World War II. It is important to say that, yeah, 1948, he was born, so he is not someone who lived through World War II. He does not have any, quote-unquote, direct connection to it. Um, it's really the aftermath and this idea of the second generation following the world war that he falls under the umbrella. It's a very, I th- not very, it's underrepresented, I think, at this state in time. Like World War, like art-based post-World Post World War II okay. as like a separate generation. Okay, yeah. Does that, that make sense? sense. Yeah, because I think people sense. are just now getting comfortable talking about World War II casually and like... That's something that like I've been thinking about a lot recently actually is like, I feel like that's fairly recent and it, it it obviously the more and more removed we get the better it is but like the like 
obviously our willingness to just talk about World War II is like so different from like our grandparents. It's something we take for granted. Like, yeah. Yeah. Because I, yeah, from my personal experience, the second I learned about the Holocaust and World War II, it was something that could be talked about just freely and in conversation. And that's my perspective yeah. as someone born in 1993 in California, exactly. in the United States. <laughs> so that that's very different than what he's coming from. You know, he came from this culture of silence, essentially, where people were so uncomfortable talking about what had happened, mostly because of their close contact to it. Austria was obviously, you know, implicated in what happened in mostly Germany and Poland. And so there's this complicated dynamic of are they victims? Are they perpetrators? Like, where do they fall into this huge situation and people just don't really want to deal with it yeah and so this is his perspective and like we were talking about people are more comfortable talking about what had happened or what has happened now and so in a way him being born after world war ii he kind of knew more about what had happened than his parents generation and i know that's a weird way of putting it because living through something is such a different experience than hearing about it. Mm-hmm. But the people who lived through it had this kind of weird... Some of them truly didn't understand the gravity of what was happening at the time that they were living. I feel like that is a great way to describe any heavy life experience. Yeah. Like, you look back afterwards and you're like, Fuck. You can look at it more objectively. Yeah, versus- but when you're in it... Any, yeah, any life experience, not that I have lived through anything even remotely close to World War II, like, privileged as fuck, um, but, like, any heavy life experience, it's, like, when you're in it, I think your survival instincts are so intense that it's just about getting through it. And then, the years later, when you can actually, like, look back at it, it's, like, this whole new lens. Like, this whole new experience of, like, holy shit, like, that happened, you know? totally. And on top of that, just the, um, the way that things were kept from public knowledge during World War II. So it's a combination yeah. of, yeah, people who lived through it who just couldn't quite um, digest or um, they couldn't process what was happening because they were living it. So that was going on, and at the same time, people were just in the dark about a lot of things that were going on, especially yeah. in Austria because there wasn't as much going on directly there. So it, it's just it's super complicated. But as he grew up, It was not something that was openly talked about, but he sensed that something was not quite right in his (laughs) home city. Something's not right about this. Yeah, you know, he had good instincts, and he's written a lot, done a lot of interviews about this kind of unique Austrian experience, but I will read for you guys a quote, one of my favorites. He says, Vienna, the city I was born into right after the Second World War, was a dreary place. The long shadows of the Third Reich were still cast over the city, and the smell of death was in the air. I remember the empty streets, ruins of bombed houses, rust, rubble, no colors, no sound. There was a sense of despair. All of the grown-ups I saw seemed silent, dark, and broken. I never saw anybody laugh. I never heard anybody sing. It was a world that stood still, as if undecided yet if life should go on. What I didn't know then was that my parents' generation had recently lost two world wars in a row and just completed the biggest genocide in history. That's crazy. Yeah. So it's it's heavy. Let's we'll just start there. His artwork deals with very heavy themes. It's not for the faint of heart, but I would really he encourage was born into heaviness. Exactly. Like, his entire upbringing as like a small child was just like weighted down by right? like, this crazy thing. Exactly. So that's where we're starting out. <laughs> and um <laughs> So this ain't this ain't cotton candy stuff we're talking not, about here. <laughs> it is not. As one of my professors said to me when I was talking thesis at one point, she was like you seem so nice and happy, though. <laughs> it's like, okay, these are not, like, mutually exclusive things. <laughs> to be, anyway. To be fair, as smart as she is, she's kind of a cotton candy person. So, like... Yeah. Like, not me, this person we're talking yeah, about. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like at least, at least her academic interests are nothing like this. Like, nothing this heavy at all. Not at all. So... 
he deals a lot with empathy, with dealing, um, empathy for victims in general. So a lot of his work, it includes children, like paintings of children. And I should include, I think every, yes, every work that I'm going to talk about is done, they're all paintings or prints, printed works done in um, these hyper-realistic styles. So uh, there's that weird mix of like, looking at something and feeling like especially connected to it because it looks so quote-unquote real and that is definitely a factor and I should mention that this style is not it's not based on wanting to get a rise out of people just to get a rise out of people he considers himself a conceptual artist so for him this style of work draws the biggest reaction, but he wants that reaction because he thinks that it's so important. What he's saying is something that really should resonate with people and he wants people to sit and dwell on. So it's not about the spectacle. It's not about upsetting people for the sake of being able to do it. It's There's intention there. And yeah, so he considers himself a conceptual artist. This is—it's really important to note looking at his work. And I'm going to very, very briefly brush the surface of what he does. So if you go and look at him on your own, um, just keep this in mind. And there's a really great article by by uh, critic Peter Gorson, and it's called Die Unterrich. My German is okay. <laughs> it's not great, but. Um, it's it deals a lot with this idea of the conceptual artist and he talks about him in relation to Joseph Boys and Andy Warhol and like how his work kind of like follows their legacies and it's super interesting and we're going to take a quick break but when we get back I will get into some of his paintings. Hey Nat, did you know that the FDA doesn't require tampon companies to disclose a list of the ingredients in their tampons? That's pretty horrifying. Um. (laughs) Yeah, so major brands use synthetic ingredients and harsh chemical cleansing agents, whereas Lola is 100% cotton and BPA-free. And for those of you who are a little more environmentally conscious and don't even want to use the applicator, they make applicator lists, they make various sizes, and panty liners for those who want them. And yeah, you can customize your subscription so you can get exactly what you need, you know, in the right sizes. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And it gets delivered directly to your door so you don't have to worry about like... Lazy girl's dream. Exactly. (laughs) Don't have to worry about running off to the store because they will be there every month at your door. Also, $5 off your first box... Come on, guys. Can't beat that. Pretty exciting. Head on over to trymylola.com slash babes. That's B-A-B-E-S. And start your subscription today. Go, guys. Do it. And we're back. (laughs) Guys, I made her do that. (laughs) Do you guys, like, do you remember the skit with Jimmy Fallon Saturday Night Live back in his like useful days and he was he was a radio DJ and he was like absolutely ridiculous but he always like opened with like and we're back and then he would do like all the stupid like radio DJ like tropes and it was really good you should probably google it google it guys do it and back to hell mine so one of god I I, I gotta say I love his stuff but I always feel weird being one of my favorites because they are pretty Pretty gruesome. Yeah. But they're not something that, like, brings you joy. They're not, but they're important. <laughs> yes, So we exactly. talk about them. They're intense and important. So one of his most important works is a 1979 watercolor, and it's titled Lebenwerts und Lebens, and that's in German. Um, or, no, just Leben... Oh, gosh. My German, guys. <laughs> it's titled Lebens und Werts Leben, which means life unworthy of life. Which is a heavy name. We'll just start there. Yeah. <laughs> life unworthy of life. Just just ruminate on those words yeah. for like a minute. Exactly. His titles are not um, chosen without thought. So the painting is of a child who appears to be about a toddler. And she is face down in a plate of food. And a little backstory. So 1979... Um, Helen Vine reads a story about Austrian forensic scientist Dr. Heinrich Heinrich Gross, 
who was in charge of the euthanization of countless children and and adults, but children for this story's purpose during World War II. And when asked about his, you know, these this euthanization of children, um, he commented that it was done um, humanely because they just put poison in the food. They mixed it into the food, and the children passed away peacefully um, upon eating it. And, you know. They're not fucking dogs. Yeah, like, and to do that to a dog humans. is hard. I, yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. I don't know if you guys have ever had to put down a dog, but, like, that's hard. Exactly. Think about doing that to thousands and thousands of children. Humanely Exactly. Off. So, Ugh. And this is, I mean, this is post-war. He is, like, coming out saying this stuff. Well, if that's not enough, you know, why is, or why is Helen Vine... You know, up in arms about this in 1979, two decades after the war is over. What's going on? So, um, Dr. Gross was about to become the Austria's new head of psychiatry, the country's new head of psychiatry. Literally, that was what was happening. This is the article that he read that got him so upset, and people didn't respond, and that got him more upset. So, he read it, was outraged, looked around, saw that no one else was outraged, and was trying to figure out why that was. And so, what he did is painted this photograph of a child literally dead in a plate of food. It's it's pretty gruesome. It is. It's rough. It's All, not yeah. an enjoyable image. Like, kind, like, trigger warning. If you go to look at these images, they're not fun to look at. Yes. Like, they they deal with very real and upsetting circumstances around World War II. But I will say, in this episode, what I discussed, this is the most graphic. Yeah, so he painted this. He wrote into a magazine profile that he had worked with in the past and asked them if they would publish it with an open letter to Gross. And they said yes, and this was the letter. He says, Dear Dr. Gross, when I was watching Holocaust, the TV program, I thought again about your attitude as reported in the Courier, and since this is the year of the child, I want to take the opportunity to, opportunity to thank you on behalf of the children who are taken to heaven under your care. I want to thank you that they are they were not quote injected to death un, end quote as you have called it, but simply died by having poison mixed into their meals. With German greetings, yours, Gottfried Hahnbein. So hopefully you picked up on the heavy amount of sarcasm in that. He just wanted to, like, emphasize how ridiculous this notion is and then how even more ridiculous it is that people could think that this man should be put in charge of the head of psychiatry. I'm sorry, someone who could do that is not of a healthy mental state. Like, I, I don't know anything about this person, but if you can enact that kind of like horror and feel okay about it like you're and not justified after yeah, the fact too. you're not of a healthy mental state and you definitely don't deserve to be in charge of other people's mental health like not it's so messed up and so just to give you an idea of you know a, a nice fa- or a nice uh, lesson i guess about human nature yeah people didn't really respond um when the tv program the articles about him were when they came out, people didn't respond. But when this painting and letter came out in the magazine, people were rightfully very upset. And it was something, to, it was it was the nature of seeing it, I think, that people underestimate how visual we are as human beings. And this extremely visual, graphic depiction of what you're reading or hearing about really hits you in a way that language can't and I don't know I don't know how to say it better than that um but it just it does and it did and this was a really pivotal moment for his career because he realized the weight that images have I mean I think he already knew he obviously had an idea of it going into making this but actually doing it and seeing the response propelled him in his career and gave him kind of a sense of purpose, which pops up again and again throughout his different series, and it's a theme that he doesn't quite let go of. He really wants to prove the power of imagery 
and show that it can be something used to talk about important issues, not just frivolous things. Art doesn't have to be something that's frivolous. It can be something that makes you reflect on things you wouldn't necessarily want to, but you should. And it doesn't always have to be beautiful. And it doesn't. And the weird part about his art, which I'll probably talk about when I talk about each of these works, is there is this kind of dialectic of his work is extremely beautiful just aesthetically because he's he is skilled and I mean his color palettes I really like he uses a lot of cool tones um this one especially he uses really cool tones for the child's face which again emphasizes the fact that he's dead in contrast with warmer tones for the food and it just it's so striking and he uses beauty to bring to light something that is so inherently grotesque and it's something about the combination of the two things that make it so impactful. Definitely. Um, it draws you in in a way, and then it just kind of, like, hits you in the face <laughs> with the reality of what you're looking at. Which I just and I think, so I mean, appreciate. I'm sure you'll get into this when you talk more about the specific works. But, like, a lo- like while some of his works are very um, graphic... Like, a lot of them, I think, do that very thing in a lot more subtle of a way. Yeah. Like, it's like you're clearly looking at something intense. It doesn't necessarily make you feel good, but it's like a more subtle it is. beauty slash intensity kind of a thing going on. Whereas that work you were just talking about is pretty obviously just like, okay, let's fucking look at the reality of the yeah. situation, which can be, like, really hard but is important. But, yeah, a lot of his work, I think, is is a lot more subtle than that particular painting. No, that's a, a that's a great way to bring it up, or um, great way to say it. And I think that has a lot to do with when he's dealing with specifics, he sometimes lets himself get into, like, something a little get into a darker territory and he will be more specific in his painting, but only to match the specificity of what he's trying to um, respond to. So in this one, obviously he's trying to depict an actual event and he's doing it abstractly because, you know, it's not like he's working from a photograph of a child who grows poisoned that it's something he actually never does. He doesn't use, references or like direct references from the Holocaust. He purposefully doesn't use them. I think it's a combination of not wanting to sensationalize it and then also um, thinking that they're so often used just like historically and in education and whatnot that he he thinks that they're almost... I'm trying to think of the right word. People become jaded to these images. You see piles of corpses in paintings, mm-hmm. or not in paintings, sorry, you see piles of corpses in photographs of the Holocaust and in documentaries, and you know it's horrible, but you see it so many times that you, your brain can't quite comprehend you it in the same way. You become kind of desensitized. Yeah, you do, yeah. exactly. You become desensitized to what you're actually looking at. So he purposefully avoids using those, and that is a great segue into the next work I will talk about. It deals with Wright Kristallnacht, which is... Um, the Night of Broken Glass, uh, November 9th, 1938. It was a huge turning point in World War II. That is when, gosh, thousands of Jewish homes and synagogues and businesses were destroyed after the assassination of a politician. Da, da, da. You you know the story. But it was, it was a big turning point. If you don't know the story, what is it, Night by Eli Weasel? Weasel? Oh, so, yeah. That's a really good book mm-hmm. about it. Um, so check that out. Very sad book, but you should read it yeah. because it deals with all of these same things. Just because the Holocaust and World War II were horrible does not mean you should not educate yourself. It's In fact, the fact that they were horrible means that it's more important that you look into it. Like, exactly. I, we all, like, obviously, we all understand that this is not the easiest stuff to talk about or think about. It's not particularly fun, but, like, that makes it all the more important. So It does. Please don't just like shut off because this isn't like a party. Yeah, we're not trying. We're not trying to upset or traumatize anyone. We're talking about it because these are things that you should be able to recognize so that they do not happen again. Because exactly. there's that famous quote that history repeats itself, and we really want to try not to repeat these things because mm. they were so bad. Like I swear to you, I am not just like a glutton for <laughs> sadness and like 
gore. I really don't like this stuff at all. I just, I can't get over the importance of it. Yeah, um, that's the thing is like, that's what makes it good research and important research though, is because it's, it's just fucking important. So like, let's just deal with it, you know? <laughs> yeah. So this work, it's called Selection. Or 9th November Night. It goes by a few names. It's an installation. It was actually installed in many cities after the first time. But the first time that he created created it was to mark the 50th anniversary of Kristallnacht. So, again, he sees this opportunity to really um, strike up a conversation and get people just thinking critically about something um, associated with World War II and the Holocaust that you know, may not become a topic of conversation otherwise. He's really kind of seizing the opportunity. So in this work, he um, chose 12 children at random and printed them on um, these enormous canvases and hung them outside the Cologne Cathedral. It's actually, I think it's across from the Cologne Cathedral and along the train station. So a lot of foot traffic there, as you can imagine. And these children were chosen at random by him, and the title selection, which was also printed on a canvas of the same size at the beginning of the installation, is meant to emphasize the randomness of these selections. So these are not children who were alive and or implicated in the Holocaust, but he's using them symbolically to to represent how easily something like this can happen and how arbitrary it is. Does that make sense? Yes, that definitely makes sense. Okay. So they're not actual images of people in the Holocaust, but they're images of people, which makes them just as important as the images of people that were lost to the Holocaust. Yeah. Because they're fucking people slash children, so... I think, I mean, I think that's an incredibly, like, powerful statement to make because it's like, even though the faces of the people that you're looking at at this large scale weren't people that died in the Holocaust, like, you could just as easily pull up images of small children that died in the Holocaust and they mean just as much, you know? So I think, I think the idea is, it's very profound and it, and it goes back to the conceptual nature yeah, of his work that exactly. he's, yeah, he's, he's... And that, That goes back to our experience that we had at the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin. There's a a moment, like, it's right after you move through this timeline of World War II slash just, like, the Holocaust. And at the end of the timeline, and this was, to me, where the emotions really started overflowing in this particular exhibit, is, like, you get through the timeline, and then at the end, there's just four images Of four completely unrelated people. There's, I think, like a child, like an older man, there's an older woman. Like, there's four completely unrelated people that all died in the Holocaust. And they're, like, if you read the little tags, it just says a few random facts about their life and, like, their name and stuff. And it's like they're these huge scale images of people that were killed because of this stupid random ass reason and it like that moment for me like the tears started flowing because it's a very you have to stand there and look in the eyes of this like human and so I feel like with Helmbein he's doing the same thing even though they're not people that died in the holocaust Mm -hmm. he's like making you he's making you approach that idea and like think about it you know totally and of this work Simon Wiesenthal, uh, who was a writer and Holocaust survivor, said, Whoever still had illusions after Wright Crystal knocked as to what designs the National Socialists had on the Jewish people failed to recognize the evil driving force which had manifested itself at that time. Not even the children were spared. They, too, fell victim to the destruction. So, yeah, like, that's what Helmwein's trying to emphasize is... This point in history was where people could stop saying, oh, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) they're not so bad. (laughs) They're not targeting the Jewish people. Like, whatever fantasies people had built to protect their... Protect, protect to themselves, yeah. yeah it was entirely what was going on a desire them. to protect yourself. That like, couldn't really be done anymore. So at that point, either you... 
you had to choose a side. And Helen Vian is just really trying to emphasize that. And, okay, so this is the kicker to this installation. A few days after it was installed, um, the works were vandalized and people had come and slashed the throats of the children at night and Mm -hmm. they're very graphic like and again it's paper they're not slashed there's nothing bloody or gory about it but just even the symbolism of seeing these young children with their throats cut it shows you that in the same way that Wissenthal is trying to emphasize that you can't you couldn't shut a blind eye to what was happening after Wright Crystal Knock 50 years later Helenbein puts up this painting. You assume 50 years later that people know that what happened that night is bad and that we should all agree that it was a horrible, tragic, tragic night. Yet people are coming to vandalize this installation to memorialize it. So there are still people out there, we're assuming neo-Nazis, they never figure out who exactly did it, but you don't need to know who it was to feel the weight of that act. Like... What they're saying is evident that yeah <laughs> that they disagree with trying to humanize yeah. the situation. Like yeah, it's. I mean, in so many ways, that act like adds such another layer to the work. It does. Though. Like it's very. I mean, it's horrible, but it's important that it happened because I think it just, like, helps prove the point further, you know? And as I said, um, it was an installation that moved around to multiple locations after this, and Gottfried, uh, or I shouldn't call him by his first name, I don't know you, I'm sorry, sir. Um, <laughs> my, de- my, my boy Gottfried. <laughs> my boy Gottfried. Helmbein decided to leave them in this state rather than replace them for that exact reason. He, th- he thought that they were much more impactful with these cuts than they were without. So some of them were, like, taped up so that they weren't just, like, flopping everywhere, but he left the cut marks, and it it's impactful. He he made the right call. Attaboy. <laughs> um, all right, so my last painting that I'm going to talk about today, and I keep saying painting, um, we had a watercolor, we had these works that were photographs and painting, so he photographs, paints on top, and then he printed these ones on scanacrome scan-a-chrom, prints um, for the installation purpose, but... Um, this last one is one of his mixed media, which comes to be his, like, most famous uh, medium. Printing a photograph, oftentimes um, digitally modified photographs, and then painting over the top. So if you see them in person, they're enormous and they're breathtaking because they're photorealistic, but the entire canvas is covered in paint. Like, in when I say paint, like, I mean, like, very detailed brushstrokes. So from afar, they look like printed photographs. From up close, you can see, like... I kid you not, the hairs on people's faces. So it just, it adds to everything that I love about his work. Tangent done. Um, Moving on to this last painting titled The Adoration of the Magi. And it is the first in his Epiphany series. And this one is a figural piece, multi-figural, which is not always how he works. He does a lot of portraits. And, um monochromatic black and white it has this weird sense of like it looks like a hollywood movie still in a way but it also um it's evoking as the title suggests um biblical scenes of the adoration of the magi so when the king when the three kings come to see baby jesus in the manger with mary da 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 so in this painting we have um the symbolic mary character who is a very aryan looking woman very uh, stereotypically European, beautiful. I don't know how else to describe her. <laughs> There's really yeah. nothing remarkable about her. Except- there really isn't. She's just hella white and like she's pretty. Exactly. And, like that's really what it is. Exactly. <laughs> and um, she's wearing this really interesting outfit, which is like the best way I can describe it is like a what someone would wear to a toga party. <laughs> Like, it's not historically accurate, yeah. like, Grecian, but it's not... It's kind of, like, got that toga you feel, but it's turned into a little bit more contemporary of a dress, like, kind of a thing. Which goes along with the entire <coughs> theme of the painting, because everyone, if you, the closer you look, everyone does look costumey. Yeah. Her, her outfit looks costumey, and she is surrounded on her 
left by four guards, um, SS guards, and on her right by another. Um, and they are all wearing uniforms that, at first glance, you assume they're, like, legit uniforms, but they're kind of all blurred and distorted and, like, a little bit off to the point that they are kind of costumey. They're not... Mm-hmm. They're not entirely accurate. I mean, the whole scene's fairly theatrical. Like, right. they all've got theatrical looks on their face. Like, they look like they're in... It's a still of a play, basically. Yeah, and it's super somber. And on her lap is a little baby, and he's standing in this contrapposto pose, which is super kind of cute and strange. <laughs> so he's got, like, his one leg up on his mom's thigh, and he's the only person in the entire scene who's looking directly at the viewer. So he's looking out at the viewer. He's completely naked. He kind of looks smug, which is a weird way to describe a baby, but he does look a little smug. And um, I look at this painting in two completely... You can look at it in two separate ways, or that's how I see it. I'm sure you could look at it in a thousand ways, in theory. But one way to look at it is that this baby is meant to symbolize a baby Jesus and Mary, obviously. And um, if Jesus were to be born in the time and place in history that this is depicting, aka the Reich Mm -hmm. during World War II... Then, um, then the SS officers would be scrutinizing him for things like, does he look Aryan? Does he look Jewish? Does he have any qualities that would be especially, uh, redeemable or not? Like, there's just all of these... It's also important to just, like, just throw out there that Jesus was not in any way Aryan. Exactly. Historically speaking, he was... Definitely. Well, of, king of the juice. Yeah, <laughs> he was he was brown skin toned, dark featured, like Born all around. Ice, yeah. yeah, he was not Aryan exactly. at all. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's one way to look at it is just, and in that storyline, it's interesting because Helenbein was not a huge advocate of the Catholic Church. He had a lot of issues with it just com- growing up as a Catholic, as often happens for people who grew up in any sort of religious institution, they kind of have, like, you know, negative experience, or negative, I don't know, emotions toward, it happens a lot. You know what I mean? Yeah, people, no, people, I think it's very common, it's not everyone's situation, but it's very common to be someone who is brought up in a certain religion, and then you kind of... have a break. Yeah, you kind of, you kind of reform yourself out of it. You kind of maybe start to question things, and, and things obviously get a lot more complicated. Um, especially for him, a lot of this came out of... He, he went to Catholic school as a child and would see a lot of paintings of, like, martyred saints. and yeah. just re- That's where he saw a lot of the gore growing up, honestly. Dude, which is- for real, like... Let's be real. We've talked about it a few times before, but like Catholicism is not chill. <laughs> like, it can get very dark. It, like, and in some ways, it's really interesting. But like, I don't know. I went to Catholic school too, and you grow up from a very young age. You're like looking. You're not just looking at, but you're you're adoring an image of someone being crucified. Yeah. How intense is that? Like, yeah. so like religion can be a very intense experience. It's messy. Yeah, it's so a messy thing. It's a messy thing. So in one way, he's kind of posing these two opposite but equal evil forces in his eyes, mm-hmm. like the Catholic Church. And a lot of his disdain also comes from learning about the Catholic Church's relationship to the Holocaust and, like, you know, notions of, like, the church possibly being aware of what was happening to a degree and not intervening and yeah. things like that. There's all sorts of complications, and I'm not going to get into it, but that's where he's coming from. So that's his view on the Catholic Church. So there's there's those ideas, you know, the Nazis and the Catholic Church as these villains of such and kind of pitting them against each other in this painting. The other way to look at it is if is that baby being a baby Hitler. <laughs> and um, the idea of these... Uh, soldiers looking at him in a way that's, yes, adoring in a way, but also very skeptical. None of these soldiers look particularly, like, stoked. They all <laughs> look like like they know what's going to happen in a way. Like, I, I describe the painting as a somber. Like, they all look wary. 
so that's another idea is it's trying to kind of paint a depiction of the blindness with which people followed Hitler yeah. and the Nazis into this situation and also like representing the people who weren't blind who like kind of saw it happening but also didn't have the guts to do anything about it um definitely so it's just all around this really it intense to moment. in a weird way this work and just the situation you're talking about i think speaks to people's like indifference to their own beliefs you know mm-hmm. what I mean it speaks to people's desire and I think this is a very human desire people's desire to let someone else tell them what to do yes and I think that's like kind of the indifference that's happening in this painting it's like these guards who are clearly older and much more experienced than this tiny baby like kind of potentially maybe following the orders of this baby once he gets older. And I think that just speaks to the commonality of that situation. Like, uh, we're not going to get super contemporary political here, but it's definitely fucking relevant. So, like, take that as you as you wish. But, like, there's, I think, a really common desire to just let someone else lead and to follow especially when you're afraid or things are just they seem to be crazy around you yeah and you don't know what's the right decision so you would rather have someone else make it for you exactly, exactly. so yes. yeah this he's dealing with a lot of these themes and there are so many of his paintings that I could talk about forever but I'm going to stop there it was pretty solid. We dealt with a lot of intense things. I did have one question for you before yeah. we bounce off. Did you, like, watch any, like, interviews with him? Or have you seen a lot of, like, personal... So, like, what's his <laughs> demeanor, like, temperament? Like, what's he just like in a very, like, just, like, how's he act? Because, obviously, he's dealing with really intense stuff. But, like, I'm just curious what his... Mm-hmm. Yeah, what his personality is like. So, I don't know how to answer this exactly but I'll give a few examples or anecdotes that I think might help Mm -hmm. (laughs) um so he wears sunglasses like all the time at night and indoors (laughs) yeah yeah so I actually um yeah I met someone recently who helped put up his show at the Crocker Art Museum in Sacramento and I kind of had that moment of being like what's he like he like what did you meet him did you talk to him like nerding Mm -hmm. out a little and he, at first he was like, yeah, he was fine. And then he came back to me a few minutes later and was like, yeah, um, he wore his sunglasses all the time. And I just, that's what struck me about him. Like, I don't know what else to say. Hey, that's about, a like, cool move. Like, well, and so like, that's going a, that's a it, dope move. He's good, good friends with Marilyn Manson. He actually ha, was at That's Marilyn. my favorite thing you've told me about him. <laughs> he has painted multiple portraits of Marilyn Manson. He was at Marilyn Manson and Dita Von Teese's wedding, um, and like was a he- had a heavy hand in the wedding. He lives in a castle in Ireland. Oh yes, yeah. yeah there's an article about him and his family, and it's called the. Mo- it's something about like the modern day Adams family. They compare them to. That's all cool. I've ever wanted to be. Yeah, like, and he considers himself closer. He relates more to rock stars and rock and roll and like comics than he does fine arts. So, um, kind of jumping back to Corey's episode on the arts and crafts movement in this like hierarchy of like crafts and fine art, like. His work definitely falls under the category of fine art, but if you were to ask him what he's into, he appreciates, quote-unquote, like, low arts more Mm -hmm. than other fine arts. Like, he's inspired just as much by Karl Barks, who's the guy who invented Donald Duck, as he is by, like, fucking Joseph Boyce. Like, he, he has this really cool open mind about what he thinks art is. That's what's up. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, so uh, that's the if best. If you want to come on our show, just like he's done costume us. design <laughs> for theater. He really, he's a super, super interesting artist. He's all over the place. He's done covers for Rolling Stone. He did portraits of Mick Jagger. He's just oh, a cool Mick guy. Jagger. Yeah. He see. I mean, also like you could have just been like he lives in a castle, and that would right. have answered my question. Or he's friends too. with Marilyn Manson. Yeah, like, all, all of those ones. are great little things. Yeah. Okay. 
Thank you for that, Natalie. I think that was a very fascinating approach to, I think, I mean, it's probably like we do these profiles on individual artists, but obviously since you did your thesis research yeah. on him, that was a very intense profile of an individual artist. So that was, that was really cool. I enjoyed Thanks. that. Um, let's do some quick listener mail. Um, listener mail from Michelle. Uh, subject, extra links and Fabergé eggs. Good morning. I found your podcast after it was recommended on History Chicks. Uh, once again, Aww. I think we mentioned this Thank before, you. but shout out to History Chicks. They are also two dope chicks who talk about history. So if you like what we do and you like history, you should probably follow them. Let's see. I've fallen in love already. I'm wondering if you could send a link to, quote, Brooke's website or Instagram, as I'd love to go check out what y'all were ooing and eyeing about. I would also like to put in a request vote for a high-quality, maybe canvas, art history babes bag. Anyways, thanks so much for helping, or for keeping me entertained this morning. I look forward to many more mornings with you all. Um, so, Brooke is a listener who also wrote in and we just like went nuts about her stuff on the Fabergé eggs episode. Um, she recently sent us a link to her new website. She just got a website up with all of her work. So we will, I don't know if it's on our Fabergé egg sources now, but I will add it to it. Um, I think we've also tweeted about it, but I'll add that to that. If you're interested, go check out her artwork. Um, it's really fun. Also, we're working um, on the bags. We're, we're working yeah, on the we're bags. On merchandise. So merch is happening. Just it's in the works. Give us a minute. Just give us a minute. But like, we're working on merch right now. I think within the next within the next month, we'll have merch out and happening. Yeah. So um, other merch ideas would be great. Right now, we're thinking what just the classics like t-shirts, canvas bags, maybe stickers. some mugs. Yeah, you mugs know? would be cute. Tell yeah. us what you guys would like. Yeah. Yeah, and send we, us cute slogans. Like, yeah. <laughs> quote us. <laughs> yeah, we we want to do like. I mean, we'll obviously do just like some general art history babes, like shirts and bags and stuff. But we'd like to do like specific quotes and like more yeah. specialized stuff. Um, and like I said, we're in the works. We're in the works with like a TJ or a t-shirt uh, screen printer and stuff. So if you have something that like you think would make a really great art history babes like t-shirt or whatever, email it to us. But also, all of you all who are interested definitely stay tuned because I think probably by September we want to get some merch going yeah, of some sort. Definitely. So um, be on the lookout for that. Um, but thank you so much, Michelle, <laughs> um, for the message. If you have any thoughts or ideas or anything you want to share with us, email us at arthistorybabes at gmail.com. Um, you can also help us out by writing a review on iTunes, which we love. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash arthistorybabes. Um, we're on every single social media, so find us and, you know, follow us and all that jazz. We really appreciate all your support and let us know if you have any thoughts on this episode or like we talked about some like really heavy ideas. So we'd really like to hear your feedback yeah. and stuff. Um, Especially for this stuff. Like it sounds weird, but I love getting feedback because I do. It's hard to dwell in like such intense topics. Oh, definitely. And as someone so outside of it to talk about it, sometimes I feel like an intruder. So the times <laughs> that I've had people come up to me and almost like reassure not they're not saying it to reassure me but telling me how it affected them or how they appreciated it or how it connects to something that they care deeply about whether they're Jewish or have family members who lived through the Holocaust all these things it really I don't know I really appreciate it and I love hearing it and I think I mean I think that's a fair like that could be applied to our entire thesis series totally um because if you're in academia you know that imposter syndrome is a very real thing. <laughs> and we spend insane amounts of hours and time in doing this research. And no matter no matter what the research is, that you can't help but have moments of being like, like, who am I to talk mm -hmm. about this shit? So like if any of any of the stuff we talked about in our thesis series, which was really fun for all of us to do, it was really fun to get to share our research with you in some capacity. Um, if anything in this series stuck out to you or you think it's interesting or you'd like to know more or you have questions yeah. or thoughts. We have very thorough bibliography. Yeah, we'll we have so much to talk to you if about. If you even just want a copy of our bibliographies <laughs> at these interesting 
just you. We can hook you up. Um, yeah, so we have so much to talk about. We have so many ideas on all of this stuff because we really put a lot of time and effort into all of it. So anything that sticks out to you, please email us about it. We can also do follow-up blog posts about ideas and things like that. So thank you so much for listening about our research that we've given part of our soul to. <laughs> and now we've seen part of our souls. Yeah, now, now you you understand us a little bit deeper. But um, we'll, next we'll be getting back to kind of normal episodes. Be on the lookout for that boxing episode. That one I think is going to be really fun. But yeah, thank you so much for listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye. From Geico presents, oh, not again, another voicemail from your roommate. Hey, man, so I was in a rush to get to work and I left the back door open. Could you shut it? I left it wide open. Uh, while you're there, could you also turn off the oven and all of the burners? <laughs> My mom never let me use the oven. I wonder why. <laughs> the Geico Insurance Agency could help keep your personal property protected, like if it's your roommate's first time operating an oven. Visit Geico.com to see how easy it is to switch and save on renter's insurance.